Open up to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. The series is all about the different seasons of faith that we will go through and how there is a song in the book of Psalms for every season of life. Whatever you're going through, there is a psalm for you. Whether it's a happy song or a sad song, whether it's times have changed or God is showing up again, there is a psalm for you. The title of today's Psalm 91 is Satan's Psalm of Choice. Why? Well, because when Satan had his shot to tempt Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world, he used this psalm to try and trip up the Messiah. He tempted Jesus using this psalm, and therefore Satan reached for it. Oh, Satan knows the Bible better than you know the Bible. You know that, right? And one of his strategies is to take something that's true and warp it to try and trip us up. So that will be part of what we talk about today. I want you to know going into Psalm 91 that it comes across as a benediction that would be prayed over an army or sung over an army before a battle. Maybe before they head off to war. But this psalm was written for dangerous times. This is like a battle psalm. And so I thought to myself, what is that like today? Well, I think what it's like today is, you know, our armed forces each have a song. It's their song, and they always play it, especially when it's time to go off to war. So check it out. Here's, here's the army's song, right? Here it is. How many of you have served in the armed forces? Raise your hand if you've served in the armed forces. So you know your branch's song, am I right? You know it very well. There's a lot of pride wrapped up in that song. So I'm not saying that this psalm is like the fight song of the army of Israel, but it, just think of that. Think of like a battle song, right? That you're ready to go to war, and, and here's what you sing in the camp with the men, right? And the priests are there singing it over you. That seems to be the best idea of what this psalm is. And therefore, it's for us today, this could become uh, like your fight song. This could become like, you know, we're in the spiritual battle of life, and, and this is like the fight song. So here's what it says in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Uh, now look back at what it says in the beginning. It says, this principle, if you dwell in the shelter of the Most High you'll abide in the shadow of the Almighty, then I will say, so this is a call for each individual person to, to make this their, their claim. God is my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Hey, if you're going to go off to war in ancient Israel, you better be saying this before you go out to meet the enemy. 
The first thing you can write down is this. Make God your refuge and fortress. Make God your refuge and fortress. The um, Israelites are called here to be in a perfect state of faith as they go out to war. Make God your refuge and fortress. There are four metaphors here about God. Who is God? And the metaphor shows us a picture of what God is like. He's referred to as a shelter, a shadow, a refuge, and a fortress. I like the idea of a fortress. Check it out. This is a fortress city. Look at that. Look at the walls. Look at how high up it rises into the sky. And imagine if you were going to try and take down that town. Boy, would you have your work cut out for you because those people are in a fortress city. And I like the thought of my God is that. And as I go out to war, I'm going in there, right? As opposed to like not trusting God, which means you don't have any protection. So I would liken that to you being in this. Check it out. This would be if you don't make God your fortress, right? I'm good. I'm good. No, there's a storm coming. I'm fine. As you're like peeking out the crooked window and saying, I don't need God as my shelter. Most people do not make God their shelter in life, and that's why things turn out this way. They have never come under the protection of the Almighty Most High God. But it's crucial on the eve of battle that you get in that fortress, because tomorrow the arrows fly. Make God your refuge and fortress. There are four metaphors. There are also four names of God listed here. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High most high. And I like what one writer, Derek Kidner, says. He says, the title most high cuts every threat down to size. I like that. The title most high cuts every threat down to size. My God is the most high. I will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The Almighty. One name for God is El Shaddai. You remember the song El Shaddai? How many of you remember the song? Is that Amy Grant? I forget who sang it, but remember the song El Shaddai? Anybody want to stand up and sing it real quick? No? El Shaddai. It's the name of God. And it was the name revealed to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob when they lived in a day where there were thousands of gods in the field and the plain and the river. And, and God showed up and said, he's the one true God. He's, he's the supreme God. He's the God who reveals himself to them. And then it says here, I will say to the Lord, that's God's covenant name, Jehovah. And then it says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God. Boy, isn't that what Thomas said when he saw Jesus after the resurrection? My Lord and my God. And so this idea that God has this covenant name, but he's my God, leads us to ask this question. Is God your God? Have, you've heard about God, but has he really become your fortress? Are you, are you in his presence knowing that's the only place you're going to find security in this life? Knowing there's a war out there, and without him, you will surely be totally defeated. Have you ever made God your refuge and your fortress? The Bible says that we have to actually call upon Jesus as Savior and Lord, because he is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So it's not enough to say, oh, I know God, and it's not enough to say, oh, I'm religious. It's not enough to say that I have a certain faith tradition. 
That's not the question. Have you ever said, my Lord, my God, Jesus save me and bring me to the Father? Then you're saved. Then you're protected. Then you're covered. And if you have that relationship with God, there's some really awesome descriptions here of what that amounts to. You have a fortress, right? Then it says in verse 3, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. So there's like some bird imagery here. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. Uh, so jot this down. Uh, he will protect you like a mother bird. A lot of, lot, of, lot of bird watchers out there. Maybe you're a fan. Maybe you're into the bird world. Um, and interesting in, a, in kind of a fight song that we're talking about the birds, but, but it's kind of cool because it shows that even in the, the greatest battles of life, God's care for his people is so nurturing. It's like a mother bird, which is really careful. So check it out. We've got some pictures of mama birds taking care of their young. Oh, look at that. It, it's, uh, there's another one. Mom, I'm cold. Here's another picture. I like that one. <laughs> all right, fine. You can all come under the wings. Uh, but there's danger, too. It says that you will be caught in the fowler snare. So we've got a picture, too, of a bird caught in a net uh, and can't get out of it, right? And, and the mom wants to protect the birds from that. So the idea is God is both comforting and protecting us like a mama bird does to her baby birds. So there's a fowler snare so there's a trap. A trap has been set, and, um, and we're as vulnerable. This might be insulting, right? We're, we're like the little birds, right? We, we're going to go into the trap. But God is going to protect us like a mother bird would protect her birds. He's going to protect you um, like a mother bird. How does God do this? How does he warn us? How does he protect us? Well, generally speaking, God warns us through his word. He gives us the do's and the don'ts of life. And if we follow and align our lives with his word, we will avoid tremendous pain and suffering. That's generally how he does it. But there are also believers who have biblical advice and they will guide us when maybe the Bible isn't crystal clear on if we should go left or go right. And we, if we take advice, Proverbs is full of promises that if you follow a wise course of life, you'll avoid tremendous problems and pain. Generally, God warns us through his word, through his people, but he also orchestrates by his providential hand circumstances in ways that that protect us often we can't know what he has even protected us from but there are those times when when we can tell based on how events unfolded wow god just protected me he protected me he like moved around the circumstances of life and i know god just brought me to safety, me or a loved one. God will protect you like a mother bird. Jot this down. He will cover you in armor. He will cover you in armor. So it goes on, uh, after the bird illustration, it goes on to say in verse 4, his faithfulness is a shield and buckler. So now we're talking about armor. So now we're back to like masculine. Armor, shield. He will, he will cover you in armor. I like that thought. God giving us his armor, his faithfulness that he has promised to protect us is like wearing armor. So here they're about to go off to battle, right? They had primitive armor. They didn't have plate mail, right? They, they didn't have like what we're used to seeing from the Middle Ages. They had basic protection. Often they had nothing because they were poor peasants 
going off to fight much larger forces. So, so where's your armor? Where's your armor? God's my armor. And that's not just saying something that's like superstitious, right? God with them was their protection. And the idea is God is the one who's going to cover them with his strength. Here's a picture of uh, a Mandalorian. If you watch the show The Mandalorian, right, it's about the bounty hunters and, and this like, there was this group of warriors called the Mandalorians. And one of the things that made them special is their armor was made out of a material called Beskar. And it's so strong that blasters just bounce right off it. Even a lightsaber can't go through it. That's how strong it is. Wow. So I love that idea that God can cover us in his divine armor so that we are protected from the dangerous forces of life in the battle. Ephesians 6.10 in the New Testament tells us the same thing. We'll put it up on the screen. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Wow, you think you've got problems on earth? If only you can see the battle going on in heaven. You wouldn't get out of bed in the morning if you knew what was waiting for you out your front door. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. What hope we are given that if we walk with God, he can cover us with protection. And listen, his armor is strong enough to repel the forces of darkness. That's how strong his presence is in our lives. He will cover you in armor. Then it starts talking about some of the problems that could happen in the camp, right? In the camp. And uh, it says here, you will not, verse 5, fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. So there could be an assault, a, you know, an attack, like the trap has been sprung, or daytime, we're going out to war, the enemy's right there, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Day and night, day and night, this means God's protection is around the clock. But the pestilence, the terror of the night, uh, there, there was a great fear back then. I mean, what did they know about bacteria? hand washing. They didn't know much, but they, you know, being around in the camp, there could be disease. And disease often in war kills more people than even the war does. So they knew that in addition to the enemy, they had to be protected from disease and from sickness. And guess what? God was right there to tell them he'll even take care of that. He will turn away, jot that down, the plague. He will turn away the plague. The idea of being protected from disease by God is one that's important in this psalm. There you are in camp, and there you are going out to meet the enemy, and you're afraid that you could get sick and you could even die. Now, how do we understand this psalm? We've got to talk theologically about a few issues here, because it sounds like these blanket promises and protections, like, no disease will touch your tent, doesn't line up with reality. Like, we get sick all the time. Some of us get seriously ill. Some Christians die of disease. What does that mean, that God didn't protect them as he promised? Well, first of all, the way that we interpret the Bible is we ask, who is the original audience and what was the intent of the psalm? The original audience was armies during the time of David or shortly thereafter. They had a covenant with God. That covenant stipulated some blessings, and those blessings were a one-to-one -one relationship. If you obey me, I will bless you. And for the armies in particular, they, their, the outcome of their battle 
rested on their status of their faithful walk with the Lord. So there are, all throughout the Old Testament, there are stories of the people who were in a sinful state. And they went off to war and they got massacred because they did not make God their trust. And then there are others, armies who were so vastly outnumbered they had no chance. They consecrated themselves to the Lord. They fasted and they prayed and the priests set them apart and they couldn't be stopped, right? So this is a very unique time in biblical history where this one-to-one correspondence, where, where even we'll read in the psalm in a second, it was almost like those who are in the right place and came to the prayer meeting survive while those who aren't die. That's how, how present God was and how eminent the result was of their faith or their lack of faith, okay? Now, is that the way that God acts today? No, no. That is, this was a very special time in salvation history where he came down and literally wrote it in stone, right? You follow me, you get blessed, you don't, you get cursed. It was a very special time. But these enduring principles do apply, and these principles about God are true. So we know that God has in the past and will in the present protect us even from sickness and disease. There are balancing truths. Of course, the psalm last week, the black sheep of the Psalter, Psalm 88, is all about how God has, doesn't seem like he's done anything he promised and we're all going to die, right? Like there are times where it feels like God is not keeping his promise. But this psalm is all about the promises of the strength of the Lord. He has and he will protect us from sickness. He will cover us in armor. He will be right there so present like a mother bird. Therefore, make God your refuge and your fortress. That's number one. Well, now things get worse. The battle is on. Verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side. Ten thousand at your right hand. That's the biggest number in Hebrew. But it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Number two, write this down. Stay close to God, especially when the battle is fierce. Stay close to God, especially when the battle is fierce. This idea in verse uh, 7, I really want to develop this for you. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near to you. Wow. The idea here is, it, it sounds like there's problems in the army. It sounds like a lot of the army is not in a righteous place. And there are righteous people who are worried, is God going to protect me? And it sounds like it's very unusual to paint a picture of battle that, you know, there's going to be 10,000 people who fall at your right, but you're going to make it. It's unusual also that God is so sifting between the righteous and the wicked. The wicked will live and the, the, the wicked will die and the righteous will live, but this is the way that it occurred back then. So it's so important to, as you charge out to stay close to God, especially when the battle is fierce. I don't think we can comprehend what this is like. I don't think we can imagine what it's like for tens of thousands of people to be falling dead all around us. 
I read in a book recently about Hiroshima. On August 3rd, 1945, B-29 bombers dropped thousands of warning leaflets telling the town that they were about to be destroyed. Many evacuated, many stayed. Then three days later, on August 6th, just one lone B-29 bomber arrived. The sirens went off, but then they just saw one plane. And how much damage can one plane do? They turned the warning sirens off. They stopped the alarm. They didn't fire it at once. And that B-29 dropped just one bomb. And of course, we know what happens next. But for 20-year-old Akiko Takakura, she arrived a little early to work. Worked in a bank, very sturdy building, stone, and there was uh, armor plating on the windows because it was wartime. She walked into her bank, she got to work, started moving papers around and cleaning down counters, and she saw just a quick flash of light, and then suddenly an eruption. That stone building survived, even though it was only 300 yards away from the blast area, but overhead, the bomb went off and flashed 10 times brighter than the sun. 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit immediately on the surface. 70,000 people died in an instant. She was alive, knocked down. She walked outside to see what happened in a a tornado of fire was swirling toward her, and she ran for her life, and she lived well into her 80s. Do you know how close she came? She looked around. Tens of thousands of people dead. She survived. Listen, that's what this psalm is talking about. Like that. Survive like that when destruction comes upon the wicked. It is terrifying. Also in the Old Testament, in number 16, when Korah's rebellion broke out, God's judgment fell and was through the plague. And after Korah's rebellion and God judged the priests who were not supposed to be doing that, the people rose up and said, we don't want this God anymore. We want to go back to Egypt. We want Moses dead. They, they were all rising up. And this plague started in the camp. And you think we've seen some problems with disease? What started sweeping through the camp you're dead in seconds of infection. And Moses told Aaron, fill fire in your censer and get out there right now and intercede on behalf of these people. And he ran out there and started waving that thing around and he stopped the plague. He stopped it. The dead were on his right, the living were on his left. 14,700 people died. Imagine what the rest of the people were thinking. God has the ability to do that to save the righteous, to stop the plague, to protect you no matter how bad things have gotten. Stay close to God, especially when things are fierce. Get into that fortress. Jot this down. You'll not suffer the fate of the wicked. You'll not suffer the fate of the wicked. It's very clear here that the wicked are dying and the righteous are not. 10,000 may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. So the wicked are dying, the righteous are not. God's seeing to it in this instance. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, so you didn't flee from God, you didn't fight God, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. So you will not suffer the fate of the wicked. This is compelling. God is committed to protecting and delivering the righteous. 
Think of Caleb when he and Joshua came back and the spies were like, they're so big, we'll never have, they're so big, we need to run away, all of us, or we're going to die. And God came down, those 10 spies, remember what happened? The earth opened up and swallowed them, same day, same day service, they gone. Then the whole generation that grumbled against God and didn't believe spent 40 years dying over the wilderness, right? But then what happened? Caleb, he kept doing his push-ups, his Pilates. He kept working out, right? An 80-year-old guy, 80-year-old, right? What, what happened? <laughs> they, they came back, it's time to charge out into the promised land. And he's like, I want to be in the front line. Send me out. I'm just as strong now as I was back then. And he go, Grandpa Caleb goes off to war. And it says he had the strength he had in his youth. Unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And so that's what it's like to be the righteous surrounded by the wicked. And you will not suffer the fate of the wicked. You'll not suffer the fate of the wicked. We're warned here against walking in a sinful manner. We're seeing here that God has his eye on each one of us and he knows if we're righteous or we're wicked. Achan sin, right? They go off to war. And what happens? Don't take anything. Don't take anything. The plunder is mine, the Lord says. And Achan's like, oh, check out that. And he hides some. He hides it in his tent. God calls the whole nation. Because then the next day they go out to war and some people died. What, what went wrong? And so he calls the whole nation, calls his tribe, calls his family. And he's just sitting there like this. Calls his name forward. And they're like, what'd you do? Uh, um, I, I took some stuff died same day god saw him singled him out he alone put the whole nation in jeopardy so god knows the wicked and he knows the righteous he knows if you're truly committed to him you will not suffer the fate of the wicked but have you truly committed yourself to the lord are you his and are you all in one writer eric reed said this most of us have chosen heaven over hell but not many of us have chosen heaven over earth we live in a worldly manner we think well god's kind of our fire escape from hell but we're really not committed to him on earth and god knows it but if you're committed to him if he truly is your fortress you will not suffer the fate of the wicked and then it says this for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Jot this down. He will guard you, uh, guard all your ways. He will guard all of your ways. Stay close to God, especially when the battle is fierce. He will guard all of your ways. This is the verse that Satan quoted when he tempted Jesus he took him into the wilderness. He said, turn these, you're so hungry. Jesus was fasting. He had to break the fast first. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus said, no, man doesn't live on bread alone. Jesus quoted scripture and Satan's like, oh, we're quoting scripture. I've got some scripture to quote. Satan goes here. He knew that he could exploit this text. This psalm seems to overpromise, right? Doesn't seem like God truly protects his people from all these things, and Jesus is destined to die an agonizing, torturous death. Satan goes right here. Let's, uh, let's put this to the test. Takes him up to the uh, top of the temple. It says he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jump. Let's just put that to the test right here. Go ahead and jump. 
Satan was misinterpreting it. This psalm offers no promise to people who do foolish things. And leaping from the temple, Jesus said, it's written to not put your God to the test. So Jesus didn't fall into that trap. Satan neglected to continue quoting the verse. He stopped where it says, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Is there any reason why Satan singled this psalm out? Because it seems to sound like Genesis where the snake's getting his head crushed. Oh, oh, you're the son of God, huh? Let's put this psalm to the test, right? Go ahead and jump. And I know why Satan didn't like this psalm because it ends with his destruction. That's why he's fixated on this one. You will trample the serpent under your foot. No wonder it was Satan's psalm of choice. And this is the promise to you and me as well. God will guard you in all of your ways. God watches over the path of the righteous. He doesn't watch over the path of the wicked. You see there are only two roads here. Sometimes the Bible makes it crystal clear. You're in or you're out. The wide road that leads to destruction or the narrow road. Which is it? The sheep or the goat? Which is it? And you're either with him or you're not. He will guard you in all of your ways if you're choosing to honor him. Jot this down. You will triumph over powerful adversaries. You will triumph over powerful adversaries. So here you are running out to battle, and on the way you meet a lion. What? Or a snake's down in the grass. Now you're in big trouble. Every little thing a warrior could worry about is covered here. I don't know about you. Here's a picture of a lion. If I was just out walking my dogs and I saw that, I'd be like, just take them. I'll just, sorry, I love my dogs, but I'd run home because <laughs> I've got no chance. It's a lot. Me versus that? Huh? Here's the next picture, and I could probably get away from this faster, but yeah! Would you try and step on that with a bare foot? No. You will triumph over powerful adversaries. This idea, so now we have the portrait here of an unstoppable warrior. Tens of thousands of people are dead all around him. Nothing can stop him. If you're righteous, that's what God is promising you here. An unstoppable warrior armed and defended by God himself. Spiritually speaking, this is what we're promised because Jesus himself said he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. And while we're not going off to war with the Ark of the Covenant ahead of us, and we don't have that covenant of if you go out to fight the enemies of Israel. We don't have that. We have bigger promises. No matter what happens in this life, God will deliver us safely into his kingdom in the next life. Even death cannot stop us from arriving safely into God's presence. Death is a defeated foe. We just walk right by him on our way into paradise. There's nothing that can stop us as we charge out on the field of battle following God who has delivered us. What an amazing truth. Number one, make God your refuge and fortress. Number two, stay close to God, especially when the battle is fierce. Jot this down. Number three, hold fast to God in love. It says in verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. So many people started with God, went to church, taught the Bible, Went, went to a kid's program and got your little badges and then walked away. So many people walk away from God. They do not hold fast in love. They don't love him. They don't hold to him. They walk away from him. And listen, you've got no protection. If you've walked away from God, you have nothing covering you. Satan has you in his crosshairs. Not, no one is coming to save you if you've walked away from God. 
you're on your own. And maybe you're being called back to God today to hold fast to him. To him and let you. Usually you have to let go of something else because you've been holding on to something else. You've been holding on to something else or someone else. This, this will help me. This this will help me. And it doesn't help. Again, you go under the water. Again, you end up miserable. Again, your life is out of control. You've got to let go of whatever it is that you were clinging to and hold fast to God in love. The idea of clinging to God in love, right, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I'll protect him because he knows my name. I'm glad God invites that. When I was a kid, we went to the Payless Pool, and when we were really young, we couldn't even touch in the three-foot section. So we'd paddle over to Mom, and then we'd hang on her, and she'd say, don't hang on me. <laughs> right? If you're a mom, you've said that before. Don't hang on me. And especially when you're out, she wades out into the deeper section. She can't touch, and she's got two of them. Bloop, down she goes. Don't hang on me. And I love that God's like, hang on me. That's pretty awesome. Hang on me. That's pretty cool. Hold fast to God in love. Are you holding fast to God in love? Do you love him? Jot this down. He'll be with you in trouble. He'll be with you in trouble. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Now, recognize that in, in order to fulfill this psalm, you have to have trouble, right? We want a life without trouble, but God says call to me in trouble, which means you have to have trouble to call out to God in trouble. So you've got trouble right now in your life. God never promises to keep all the trouble out of your life. He promises to be with you in it. Call out to him. I'll be with him in trouble. I'll answer him. That's prayer. That's prayer. God promises to be with us. He will be with you in trouble. So what trouble are you facing right now? What are your problems? Are you crying out to God about your problems? He will be with you. Jot this down. He'll rescue and honor you. I will rescue him, verse 15, and honor him. This is the warrior who survives, does great deeds, and is therefore exalted. I will rescue him and honor him. More than survival, there's actually accolades attached to this, you will come out shining. I will rescue and honor you. What do you need to be rescued from? What do you need to be restored to? Do you believe God will rescue you? The idea of rescue is a very humiliating portrait here, that, that how bad is it, God? Can't you just give me a tiny little bit of help? Like, I've almost got this bar all the way back up, and I just need a little help from God. No, 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 we need to be rescued. It's bad. It's really bad. Check out this video of a rescue that happened on a bridge. A scene straight out of an action movie. Trapped in a car, dangling over the edge of a bridge, afraid to move a muscle. A terrifying real-life drama for first-grade teacher Kelly Lynn Groves and her two daughters, 10-month-old Milo and 10-year-old Sage, trapped in their squashed BMW, teetering over a 100-foot drop. It all happened on Highway 101 in California. This big rig truck rear-ended the Groves moments before it plunged into the creek below and burst into flames. The truck driver, Charles Allison Jr., killed instantly. Inside the car, Kelly Lynn Groves and her daughters struggled to get free as rescue workers fought to save them. They're all trapped. That's a rescue. Right there. 
that's you. Right there, that's me. How much do you need God? Uh, hanging over a hundred foot drop in flames below. See the crane on the right? A crane driver was just on his way to work. He saw this happen. He sprang into action and he lifted that car up. Isn't that amazing? That's what God does. He will rescue and honor you. Wow, what a promise. Verse 16, it gets even better. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. We've come through hell. Tens of thousands of dead people in this psalm. And here we are, and we're going to live. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Jot this down. He will give you life and salvation. We survived the battle. This looks ahead to a permanent victory over the forces of evil. Satan knew it. Satan knew it, and that's why he went after this psalm. He wanted the Messiah to go away because he knew how this psalm ended. The way this psalm ends is he loses and we win forever. Forever. He'll give you life and salvation. We aren't going to see the full victory until the very end. And there's going to be a lot of problems along the way. But we will see the victory. Well, let me close by mentioning this. I've got to mention this as a Chicago White Sox fan. How many of you watched the Field of Dreams game this week? Wow. Wasn't it amazing? They were supposed to do it last year, COVID. So they did it this year. Lauren and I had to go back and watch the movie Field of Dreams because we got so sentimental watching the ball game. So we watched the whole movie Field of Dreams on Friday. Uh, but we were watching the game. And, you know, they, they put this Major League Baseball field right on the set of the movie, right? And then the, the Sox were there because they were featured in the movie against the Yankees. And the players were just like kids taking pictures in the corn, right? And uh, then Kevin Costner at the beginning of the game. If you you got to watch it if you haven't seen it. Kevin Costner comes out of the corn, and there's only like 8,000 fans there, and they go wild. And he walks up, and he's looking around. It's like the movie's continuing. And then the players come out of the corn to play the game. And it was like chills, right? Chills. <gasps> and then they come out, and he gives a speech. And in this speech, he talks about how this is perfect. Here we are, about to enjoy a baseball game against the first-place White Sox and the mighty Yankees, and he says... It's perfect. It's perfect. And then he asks a question. The question was originally asked in the movie. And the movie was Shoeless Joe Jackson. After he was out there on the field, he turns around, Ray Liotta, and says to Kevin Costner, is this heaven? And so Kevin Costner asks, is this heaven? Check out some pictures. It, it's pretty awesome. They're coming out of the corner for the game, and the fans are going wild. And here's the next picture. And they've got the old-time scoreboard up there that you've got to do by hand. Here's the next picture. And, and it, he's just giving his speech. And, uh, and so then he says to the fans, I guess there's just one more question to ask. And he says, is this heaven? And they all go wild. And they erupt in cheers. And he says, yes. Yes, it is. In the movie, he said, no, is Iowa. But now he's saying yes. Yes, it is. And I get it. I get the nostalgia. I get the, the legends and baseball. But no, Iowa is not heaven. It is not heaven. But soon, soon, Jesus will return. He's not coming out of corn. He's coming from above on the clouds with great glory. 
with tens of thousands of angels at his side and billions of saints from all of time who show up. And the last trumpet will sound. And listen, the righteous will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the wicked will go off to perish for eternity. Are you in? Are you in? Are you in? Let's pray. Father, what an amazing psalm. How perilous and deadly it is. And as we battle our way through this life, how could we do it without you? But so many have done it without you. They've tried their own way and failed again and again. You were there somewhere. They knew about you, but they've never trusted you. They've never asked Jesus to save them. They've been going it alone. And I pray that today they would realize the great error of their ways. They've had no shelter, no protection, no armor. That's why their life is so terribly messed up. Today I pray that they would turn away from all of the nonsense that they've believed, all of the things they've trusted that have never helped them. And I pray that they would say, here and now I trust Jesus Christ alone who triumphed over sin and Satan and death. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my armor. I trust nothing else, no other name. No other name. I pray, O oh Lord, that people here would believe in the one true God spoken of in this psalm. Not just any God. It says... It says in this psalm, you know my name. I pray that they would know the only God who has ever revealed himself in history and trust him and the Son who was revealed with great glory. I pray, Lord, that they would cry out and that they would be rescued off of that bridge of destruction and delivered safely into the presence of God. And Lord, for those of us who have trusted you so long ago, help us not to lose heart, even if 10,000 fall at our side. A terrifying thought. If things couldn't be worse, help us to cling to you in love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.